Hello, and welcome back to the Cuse Conversations podcast. My name is John Boccasino, the communications specialist in Syracuse University's Office of Alumni Engagement. I earned my bachelor's degree in broadcast journalism from the SI Newhouse School of Public Communications in 2003 and later received my executive master's degree in public administration from the Maxwell School of Citizenship and Public Affairs in 2020. You can find our podcast on all of your major podcasting platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You can also find our podcast at alumni.syr.edu slash Conversations and anchor.fm slash Conversations. The fact that we were able to get through this, um, it, it also helped to shape my uh, career because I went down an avenue that I never thought I would. I For years, I tried to help children with incarcerated parents because I felt that that was so important with my own personal experience. So it's just done wonders. Well, folks, today on the podcast, we are pleased to bring to you the story of Maria Palmer. She happens to be a classmate of mine. 2003, she studied public relations in Newhouse. She has a new book coming out called On the Rocks. She's an accomplished author who has dedicated her career to representing marginalized populations, advocating for social justice issues, and doing some great work in her Western Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh community. Maria, take the time to join us here on the podcast today. It's so great to have you, Maria. Thank you, John. It's so great to be here. I really appreciate this opportunity. We'll get into it, obviously, with the book On the Rocks. It's a great narrative nonfiction book that's written by yourself and a, a friend of yours, Ruthie Robbins. It's talking about, of course, the journey of, of your dad, Joseph Costanzo Jr. And it really seems like he went through um, uh, quite the metamorphosis in, in reinventing himself. Yeah, definitely. So um, my dad, Joseph Costanzo Jr., I'll tell you a little bit of the backstory about him and also his restaurant. So whenever he was younger than I was, 32, uh, he had a very comfortable job as a postal worker. And he decided to leave everything and take a gamble and go to a tough steel town and open an Italian restaurant in a space that was previously occupied by an Italian restaurant that was failing. Um, He knew nobody in the town and he was able to work his way up to being a nationally acclaimed restaurant mentioned in places like Playboy and the New York Daily News. And he himself received many honors on behalf of the restaurant, um, one of which was the uh, America's Top Restaurant Tour by the International Restaurant and Hospitality Rating Bureau. Because of all of his success in the restaurant, he also did run for political office. He had a radio show. Uh, He had a column in the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, which is Pittsburgh's largest newspaper. So yeah, he, he was very, very well known in the area for sure. I miss restaurants so dearly now during the pandemic. So I guess I'm longing for you to maybe give me some more of that nostalgia since I haven't gone out to eat in a restaurant in, in ages due to, uh, due to the pandemic. So what did you kind of pick up from your dad um, and just the way that the restaurant uh, impacted people's lives in Pittsburgh? One of the things that is very interesting about my dad is I always joke around and I use this line a little in the book as well. He's definitely not your average Joe. He really is a large risk taker. Um, 
he rolls the dice. He's a larger than life type of personality. And I think that those were a lot of the keys that led to his great success opening the restaurant. As far as the restaurant's impact on my life, um, I was four years old whenever he got into the restaurant business and shortly before my sister was born and then he got into the restaurant business. So it was always a joke that the restaurant was my third sibling because of the amount of time that he spent and the amount of passion and love and investment that he had for the place. And as far as the impact that it had on the Pittsburgh community, the area in McKee's Rocks was one in which um, was a place where a lot of Italian immigrants came to during the World War II era. It was a very big place to pull from the steel mill industry, which obviously was Pittsburgh's largest industry at the time. And as that started to unfold, the scene in, in McKee's Rock started to unfold too. So people ended up jobless and hopeless, and it really was not a destination for anybody but locals. And my dad found a way to bring some really good news back to McKee's Rocks and really made it a destination for people. And people flocked um, all over the city to come to the restaurant and then eventually all over the country. And it really became a celebrity hotspot too, which was kind of fun. How can you, I know you might be a little biased uh, just growing up uh, with your with your dad and, and seeing the restaurant up close and personal and the blood, sweat and tears that he poured into it. But what this, what what exactly made the restaurant such a, a destination? I mean, when you think about A-list restaurants and, and Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh is definitely an up-and-coming city, but I wouldn't imagine the location you're describing as a sought-after destination. So how did he make it desirable? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think part of it was you have to have a very good product to stand by. And um, we were lucky because my dad's a first-generation Italian immigrant, so Food is something that came very naturally to our family. Um, we had some really great family recipes. My grandmother was a absolutely wonderful uh, cook her entire life. Life. Um, the original chef at the Prima Donna was my dad's first cousin who had just got off the boat from Italy. So really that good, authentic Italian food that everybody in the neighborhood not only knew, but was accustomed to. He you know, was a competitive go-getter by nature, but I would say that his competition was very much within himself to always wanna do better, have things bigger, push the limits. So once he got um, a local uh, acclaim, then he wanted to go for a regional acclaim, then he wanted to segue into national acclaim. So he always had his eyes set on something that was just a little above where his current status quo was. And I think that that's what made him so successful and hence the restaurant, a uh, household name. Sadly, this, this story of your dad's restaurant isn't solely uh, a feel good, you know, positive story. There's a, a negative side to it too that ends in your father um, serving jail time for tax evasion. Connect the dots for us, Maria. How does your dad, cause your dad seems like he was somebody who was well-respected in the community, somebody that had a, a venerable restaurant he's running, and all of a sudden he's behind bars. How did that happen? 
<laughs> that's a great question. I ask myself that almost every day. And, you know, that's why we had to write the book. Um, so at the time that he went under investigation, he was really at the top of his game. He had just won uh, a national Dorona restaurant award, which very few restaurants in the nation have. He was just named the top 10 restaurant tour in America, as was his restaurant, the top 10 Italian restaurant in America. And as you said, all good things can come to an end in one moment. And for our family, that was a knock on the door uh, that unfortunately I was the person that answered. And it was the federal government looking for my dad. And what he found out um, was he was subject of a criminal investigation and his name was mentioned in a federal grand jury investigation of somebody that was being closely scrutinized as that person's way of lessening the sentence. But what happens is when you are mentioned in a federal grand jury investigation, automatically you're looked at in a criminal way and not in a civil way. And so it was a three-year invasive investigation. Um, people really doubted that his success um, was so unlikely in McKee's Rocks because as we talked about, it's this tough steel town and all of a sudden there's limos parked outside, celebrities are flocking to the place, politicians are coming in. And, you know, I, I think it's possible that that sort of raised a red flag. Um, but after the three-year investigation, what was found is that uh, he did have underreported income due to a failed political campaign. And he pled guilty to tax evasion charges and ended up serving five months behind bars at the Morgantown Federal Correctional Institution. That's a lot to process, uh, Maria, especially for yourself having to be the unfortunate person who answered the door when the, the federal investigators were knocking. What was that like for you? I mean, your father was someone you seemed to put on a pedestal and, and you respected him quite a bit. You guys had a, a good relationship. So how, how hard was that for you to see someone who was a, a pillar in your family under allegations for these misdoings? It was gut-wrenching. Um, really like somebody had just pulled the, the, my heart right out of my chest um, because it was shocking. It was not that he was the subject of the investigation. He became a subject because his name was all of a sudden mentioned. So we really went from a family that was so well known in the community. My dad was very philanthropic with the restaurant, trying to give back, trying to do positive things into the community. And then it all flipped. And, you know, people, they love to um, know what's going on with other people. They love to, you know, talk about you at maybe your lowest moment. And unfortunately we were the subject of that for a while, um, you know, I got to personally escape it because when the investigation was going on, I was finishing my last year at Syracuse and then I had moved to Los Angeles. So for me, it was not as awful as it had to have been for my mom and my sister and my family that is local because they were living it and breathing it every day. But 
it's still very, very, very challenging whenever somebody that, that you love and somebody that you know is a good person deep down inside ends up spending some time behind the bars of a prison. It's never an easy, easy situation. With regards to, to serving the time, Maria, it, it, it does seem, though, that it could have been a lot worse, you know, for your father um, with regards to his prison sentence only being five months. What role do you think the, the, the community played um, in, in, in telling your dad's good works and trying to sway the judge that, again, this was an honest man who made a mistake in being a bad bookkeeper versus devious intentions? We will always, always, always be so appreciative to the people of McKees Rocks and the community of McKees Rocks and just the greater Pittsburgh community because you know what? They helped us so much. They came, they went to our restaurant, they were part of our lives. So we are forever indebted and so grateful to them. Um, they, a lot of the community members wrote letters to the judge and pleaded, you know, that my dad was really a good person, that he had done some really wonderful deeds. He had helped uh, people through college. He, one time he read about a guy who um, was getting engaged and somebody stole his ring and he just randomly went and bought the guy another ring. I mean, this is the type of person my dad is. So I think whenever the tables were turned, people felt inspired to do the same for him. And, you know, that did not go unnoticed. Uh, trust me, whenever you're going through all of this, it was wonderful to have that support and those uh, folks step up and say that, you know, this is a good person. So then take us to the next step uh, in, in your journey with this book on the rocks coming out. What made you want to shed light uh, even more publicly on this, this story of your father, his rise, his fall, his, his recovery, and the impact uh, that he made on the Pittsburgh community. What made you want to uh, release this book? What had happened was this was a book in progress for a really long time, which started as a family history project because um, there was always a joke with my dad that, you know, somebody should write a book because you can't even make this stuff up. It's better than fiction. Um, and so we just started as honestly, very old school. I'm going to date myself. And I know that you'll understand John too. Um, the little tape recorders that we would use to record lectures back in the day in college, I, I had that. And so we just started recording stories and, you know, he would tell me these random stories about somebody that would come in or something that happened at the restaurant or something that happened to him. And, these stories seemed a little bit more than just something that a parent would tell a child. They were interesting and intriguing. And so I started writing them down and cataloging them. And um, eventually, you know, life happens. I got married, had kids, moved across the country a couple of times. And so the project really got shelved for, I want to say, probably almost three to four years. I didn't even touch it because I had no idea where to go with it. And then I was able to connect with an old high school teacher who uh, grew up, she's as old as my father, that's Ruthie Robbins, and she grew up right across the street from the restaurant and was a great customer at the restaurant and knew our family very, very well. And so she learned um, through her son, who is also a, a friend of mine, that I was 
writing this book and um, we connected over a holiday and I, you know, sent some of the um, vignettes that I was working on up to her. And at the time she lives in Buffalo and she was editing books for folks who are published authors. And so she flipped the coin and actually went to one of those writers groups and took some of my stuff. And the people at the writing group said, Ruthie, there's something more to this story. You know, like this is a story that you got to tell. And we decided from there that we would partner together and that we would finish this story. And I'm so glad that we did because it was one of those things in my own professional and personal life. I love accomplishing things. And this was just one of those things that I just, it, it just seemed like something that was put on the shelf for way too long. And um, the fact that we were able to partner together and to get this done, even though it's been 14 years, I'm so grateful. How did uh, your interviewing process with your father and shining the light on his story, how did that bring the two of you closer together? Oh, so many ways. Um, Whenever a family goes through a really challenging time, um, oftentimes it's just something that you don't talk about anymore. It becomes the elephant in the room. And I think whenever we first started writing this story, we were inclined to tell all of the good things, all of the wonderful things that the restaurant was and how he made the restaurant. But the fact of the matter is, is we live in a Google Wikipedia era and um, anybody can pull anything off of the internet. And especially if it's public record, you're going to be able to see it quite quickly. And with the help of Ruthie, I was able to help my dad to find his own voice and to tell the story that so many people have wondered about because whenever he was going through the investigation, he just ended up retiring and selling the restaurant and that was it. And then people honestly almost never heard from him. And he was, you know, a guy that was so integral to the community. It's just one day you're here, the next day you're not. There's, there's a huge gap in people's minds. And I feel like the local Pittsburgh crowd has always longed to know more of the story. And they deserve to be told that story through the eyes of my dad. And the fact that we were able to get through this, um, it, it also helped to shape my uh, career because I went down an avenue that I never thought I would. I For years, I tried to help children with incarcerated parents because I felt that that was so important with my own personal experience. So it's just done wonders. And, you know, my dad um, has had a lot of health challenges too. So being able to deliver this story honestly has created so much hope for him. Um, We almost lost him this last September. And I, I feel as if we didn't have this book. I know it's going to sound a little crazy, but I don't know that he would have pulled through what he was going through, but he had so much hope and so much positivity that something wonderful was about to happen. He was able to overcome. And I think in that it's, it's wonderful. I'm, I'm so grateful and blessed. Even if this book only sells one copy and that's me, that's buying it. It's still in my mind will be a success. I'm glad you brought up. And I think this is a good point to transition in our conversation to your, your work outside of being an author. And I want to focus on your work 
with marginalized populations, especially the prison populations. You yourself went through having an incarcerated father. How did you then take those experiences and parlay them into working with um, Get On The Bus, a great agency that helps connect children with their incarcerated? At first it was mothers, right? And then you brought both mothers and fathers into the equation? Correct. Um, so during the, my dad's time of investigation, as I had mentioned, I actually moved across the country to Los Angeles as my husband, who is also a Syracuse alum, was pursuing a film career. And uh, whenever we moved to L.A., one thing that we wanted to try to do together is we wanted to find a place uh, to go to church. And so we started shopping around. And one of the churches in particular in Beverly Hills was having a talk um, that was conducted by a Catholic nun who started an organization called Get on the Bus, which took children to go visit their incarcerated mothers. And of course, this was a topic near and dear to my heart. So I went to the presentation completely blown away by what she had to say. Um, she brought the first bus of children um, 17 families and um, they went and to visit their mother and most of the children in, on that bus had not seen their mother between four and 12 years. Um, so it was really such an emotional journey, um, both spiritually, physically, and also a way to connect that very valuable parent-child relationship that really should never be severed. Um, and she and I connected after uh, her presentation and I said, you know, I would love to help you in any way that I can. This is my information. This is who I am. I shared a little bit about my own story. And then I never heard from her because she actually lost my information until. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Until years later, um, I had to do a thesis project for my master's at Pepperdine. And um, I ended up approaching her and saying, hey, I don't know if you remember me. And she was just dumbfounded and said, remember, you have been searching for you for years. And really, it was from that point forward, I started doing some program evaluation for her. And then whenever her um, current program director of Get on the Bus actually left one day, we were sitting at a gas station and she was explaining what had happened. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry. That's so awful. And she said, well, not really, because I have somebody else in mind for the job. And I said, well, that's great. And she said, well, it's you. <laughs> and I said, what? I can't do this job. I, I you know, was fresh out of college, almost had no experience. And you know, it was a learning curve. I was young. I was trying to figure out um, you know, my, my sea legs on a very <laughs> bumpy journey. But she was with, there, with me the entire time and really her belief in trying to help my career is something that I will never forget and I'll always be indebted to Sister Suzanne Jabro, who's just a powerhouse in the social justice, criminal justice world. It, it really is remarkable and commendable the, the work that you guys, um, that you, you took on with that project. I think what's really inspiring to me is we talk about when crimes occur, there's your obvious blatant, uh, you've got a situation where someone commits a crime, they are the, the perp. And then there's these voiceless victims. If you're not actually one of the people who's affected, say by a robbery, there's voiceless victims, the family members of that criminal who lose 
uh, maybe a major breadwinner financially, uh, a support emotionally inside the house. It seems like there's so many more victims than just the one who has the crime committed against them. How important was it for you to get involved and try to give a voice to those victims? So important. I always do say that children are the faceless, voiceless victims of crime. And children serve crime right alongside of their parent or loved one. And the thing is, is they can't rationalize. They see their parent as their loving support system. And all of a sudden, that support system is then taken away from them. And it's very, very challenging developmentally to overcome that. So some of the research that was done through Get on the Bus and through some outside agency sources, mainly through UCLA and some other larger research institutions in Northern California, is they found that whenever children are able to see, touch, and talk to their parent in prison, they have better outcomes academically, socially, and emotionally. And on the flip side, the parent in prison also has better incomes too, as far as whenever eventually they're going to get out. And whenever they do get out, the recidivism rates are much lower. They have uh, much lower rates of mischief with inside of the prison walls. They have uh, more of a sense of hope and a sense of belonging and a sense of connection that um, is just going to help them whenever they transition after their time served. Where did your passion for storytelling and for writing, where did that come from? I've always been intrigued by the human spirit. There's something about uh, people's stories. And I was always, still am as a grant writer today, um, very, very big into tell me how this program had an impact on somebody. Give me a story. Give me a concrete example. Show me an image. You know, really pull my heartstrings. And I think because of that, I'm attracted to a myriad of different people. And I have a myriad of different people in my lives as friends, you know, every, everybody from, you know, folks that are really high up, maybe in the financial and banking institution to, you know, people that have served major criminal offenses and have had life sentences in in prison and have since then gotten out and everybody in between, I can find, something interesting about everybody that I talk to and somebody, everybody has something that they can give to this world. And I love finding out what that magic is in each person. So that's really where my passion for storytelling and for writing came. And now you're, you're doing writing for a higher purpose, of course, to your work with the St. Paul's Community Development Corporation. Can you give our audience a little insight into why this was a good fit for you and what difference St. Paul's is making in the lives of people who really could use some assistance. Sure. So uh, whenever we decided to move back east to be a little closer to our families, um, respectively in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, um, I knew I had to leave Get on the Bus. But before I left Get on the Bus, our grant writer, uh, Kelly, sat down with me and she said, you know, I just want to put this out there if you ever need it. Um, Grant writing is a great way to have a career and also have a family. And you still get to do great work within the nonprofit industry and really make a difference. But 
it's a little bit more flexible. And, you know, if you're, if you're able to be successful at it, you're doing more of the behind the scenes versus the out there direct service work, which is a lot of, you know, 24 seven blood, sweat and tears. And it's hard to do if you have a family. So I took that with a grain of salt, but, you know, honestly listened to everything that she had to say. And whenever we moved here to New Jersey, um, I was really trying to find my sea legs once again. It was a, a tough transition coming from California to New Jersey, trying to find jobs, um, you know, trying to reinvent our careers per se. But um, I was able to happen upon because um, of my in-laws uh, volunteer involvement with uh, St. Paul's. I was learned about it and really liked some of the things that they were doing. And um, whenever I originally worked uh, for their organization, they had an after school program for inner city youth, which um, they did uh, help and assistance with homework, extracurricular activities. So that was really my lead in. And then um, once that program actually shut down, I then transitioned into the St. Paul's Community Development Corporation, the nonprofit. Um, and the goal of that particular organization is uh, they're trying to create human self-sufficiency by giving folks a hand up, not a hand out in throughout Passaic County, New Jersey, and specifically throughout Patterson, New Jersey, which actually has very similar uh, demographics, interestingly enough, to McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. And through this program, I'm able to write on their particular programs, which they have a food pantry that has been integral during the time of the pandemic um, that's serving on average, we're seeing about 700 to, you know, eight or 900 at our highest uh, families per month that are coming for food service. Um, we also have an emergency men's shelter where men can come and live with us for as long as needed until they can transition into permanent and supportive housing. We have a permanent housing structure for five single women without children. We have an AmeriCorps program where we house AmeriCorps members and we also farm AmeriCorps members throughout Passaic County to other organizations. Uh, we have a Next Step Workforce Development Program, which works with TANF and GA uh, welfare clients. And we work specifically in areas of um, job force development. And we do have an arm called Breaking the Cycle, which works with previously incarcerated persons. Um, and we have a culinary program, which is very cool. So, and um, last but not, not least, we have a full service community schools program that brings viable services into the schools in the city of Patterson. So we have parenting classes, we have language classes because a lot of our families are first generation American. Um, they're trying to learn the school system. They're trying to learn the language. We also have, we're the first organization to have food pantries inside of the schools to make it a little easier for children um, who have parents that are working multiple jobs to be able to get the food that they need in order to sustain their household. So it's been great work. It's been wonderful because I also have two um, young children and two young rescue dogs at home, um, as well as a husband who normally without a pandemic does a lot of traveling. 
So for me, it's my way of being able to give back and to further my own career while still being able to be a large part of my family's life, which is incredibly important. Doing meaningful work. I love just to hear you talk about you know, being the impetus for shining a light on the good works that are being done uh, in, in the Patterson community. Because I think it's too often when you hear about the blight that plagues a city, you focus on the negativity, not those who mm-hmm. are trying to really uh, do a good good service and, and lift up. And I love it being a hand up, not a hand out. The phrasing is so important when it comes to these types of, of program, programs and offerings to the community members. Um, when you take stock of everything, Maria, what role did Syracuse University play in getting you to this point? And how has your uh, educational experiences at Syracuse carried over to what you're doing here with St. Paul's? You know, I owe a lot to Syracuse. I really do. Um, I was a public relations major. And while I was going to school, I really, I was probably a lot like most college uh, kids. I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I picked a major and tried to go with it. And it wasn't till a summer internship before my junior and senior year where I was interning at an advertising agency And um, I was put on a a beat to try to drum up some um, press interest for a heating, cooling, and air conditioning company during a summer in Pittsburgh where temperatures were not going above 70 degrees and nobody was really in the market for heating, cooling, or air conditioning at the time. Um, So needless to say, I was not very successful at all. Um, But what I was able to do that summer is I was able to pair with the company's CEO who was quite involved with the leukemia and lymphoma society, specifically the light, the night walk. And he had an interest in getting some press coverage. So I was able to help design a press kit, which obviously I learned um, through my education at Syracuse. And I was able to interview um, families who had been impacted by leukemia and lymphoma in in addition to the CEO who had lost his biological brother before he was born. But I was able to learn of one girl who um, was 13 years old going through chemotherapy and lost her hair. So she wrote a book about uh, hairstyles with wigs and how to how to stay cool and different um, whenever you're going through really challenging times. I met a family whose twin boys, one with leukemia, the other um, not, became a bone a bone marrow donor for his brother um, and ended up saving his life. I met, um, you know, uh, uh, people that became lifelong friends through uh, living um, donation of bone marrow and, you know, their impactful stories. And I was just really blown away about all the gifts that life gives. So I um, was able to package it up in a nice little pretty gift and present it to the media. And it was really then um, through that experience, which Syracuse granted me, and actually the CEO was a Syracuse alum as well, I must say that um, it really paved, it paved the path for my entire career. So I am very, very, very thankful to Syracuse. When someone finds out that you, you did go to Syracuse and you graduated with that public relations degree, what does it mean to you to be able to call Syracuse your alma mater? So much. I mean, Syracuse has just this wonderful, diverse pool of 
alumni that are doing so many different wonderful things. And it's so awesome to be a part of the bigger, larger piece of the puzzle. Um, for me personally, Syracuse has given me some of the best friends in my um entire life. Uh, Syracuse has given me my spouse <laughs> um, and hence then my two children. And it's really changed the trajectory of, of my life. So like I said, I will be forever indebted to Syracuse. And I mean, who doesn't like auto? I mean, come on. <laughs> Best <laughs> mascot really out cool, there. <laughs> yeah, a really cool furry orange mascot i mean <laughs> you can't lose come on <laughs> yeah he's auto oh, auto yeah. is such an institution on our campus here and really there's no uh easy way to segue out but maria i know you've done some amazing work uh we can't wait to read the book uh and get a chance with on the rocks to really go in depth more with your your father's complicated story and legacy and also you're doing tremendous work with these marginalized populations giving voice to the voiceless keep up the great work and thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on the podcast thank you john and thank you for all that you're doing too i'm really enjoying hearing all of the stories of the uh, past alumni that are coming on so thank you thanks for checking out the latest installment of the cuse conversations podcast my name is john Boccasino signing off for the cuse conversations podcast 